Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. Do you remember where you were on the morning of September 11th, 2001? I suspect if you were conscious at the time, you do. For those of us who are old enough to remember the terrorist attacks on that day, they almost certainly trigger the flashbulb memory phenomenon. For our younger listeners, before everyone took photos with their phones, we used cameras. They had flashbulbs. Some were usable only once and were super bright. After the flash, sometimes you would see residual images in your vision, like dots or splotches. The flash was seared into your eyes for just a second. The flashbulb effect is when a terrible or wonderful event, usually unexpected, becomes seared into your mind's eye. 9-11 was that for most of the country. For the baby boomers, this was exemplified by the assassination of President John F. Kennedy and the Apollo 11 moon landing. For the greatest generation, Pearl Harbor, and some say when they heard when FDR passed to the great eternal. I remember exactly where I was on September 11, 2001, around 9 a.m. I was in a conference room at Cornerstone Schools in Detroit, where I used to work. I was having an animated and very complicated discussion with my boss and several other staff members about marketing and fundraising in corporate governance. A consultant who was supposed to arrive called in and said that she was not coming because a plane had hit the World Trade Center and the National Mall was on fire. We heard this message secondhand and uh, we all kind of shook our heads and were trying to figure out what was going on. We knew something pretty bad had probably happened, but couldn't understand why that would stop the consultant from coming to this long pending meeting, which had been hard to schedule. The conversation continued for about another 90 minutes, and then we walked out of the meeting. I soon talked to several staff members who said something terrible was happening in New York and elsewhere. I realized that this was much bigger than some kind of prop plane accidentally crashing into the Twin Towers, which is what I thought the initial disclosure meant. As you will soon see, So did the president. We didn't have TVs in the school, at least that I knew of, and I eventually went out to lunch with one of my co-workers to a Coney Island and watched in stunned silence the TV images of the attacks. When I returned to the schools, fear had gripped much of the faculty and staff. We understood America was under attack and just had no idea what would happen next. Images of more building attacks, suicide bombings, and terror sweeping the country filled our imaginations. We were wrong about that, but we were right that the world had changed dramatically in a single morning. Because Patriot Week's first anchor date is 9-11, and its 20th anniversary is this year, we will address the attacks. We think this is especially important in light of the very recent withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan and the fading of the attacks in time, memory, and importance, at least to many people. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. Our regular listeners will know that we have just finished our deep dive into the text of the Declaration of Independence and its signers, and we soon will be diving into the transition to the Constitution and then the Constitution itself, and we will return to our regularly scheduled programming soon enough. But now, we reflect on 9-11 in this special episode. Before we begin, I asked Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett to share both their flashbulb memories of 9-11 with us. Let's start with Mike Gerard. On September 11th, 2001, I was working out in Oklahoma in a juvenile detention facility. And that particular morning, I was driving one of my kids into Oklahoma City, which was about an hour, 20 minutes away, to attend a funeral. His grandmother had just died and his grandmother had raised him. 
and it was very, very tragic. And so I decided that I would be the one to drive him in. So we stopped at the gas station in our small little town and filled up the van. And as we were doing that, we heard on the radio that a plane had crashed into a tower in New York. And we didn't think anything of it. We just went about our way, got on the highway, and started driving towards Oklahoma City. And of course, shortly thereafter, the second plane hit. And here I am in this van driving in Oklahoma, uh, down the interstate, headed towards Oklahoma City with a kid who is in juvenile detention, and he has just lost his grandmother. He is experiencing the worst day of his life, and I'm sitting there at a loss on how to process what's happening. And I remember just feeling very, very helpless. We talked about it a little bit, but for him, it was more of a diversion. And for me, it was it was a real struggle because I knew something was happening, but I could not access any other information, and I was feeling very, very lost. And as we get into Oklahoma City, uh, we pass right by the Murrah Federal Building because we were going to a church literally right next door to it. And at that precise moment, I'm looking at the remains of the Murrah Federal Building, and I hear on the radio that the plane crashed into the Pentagon. And I just remember looking past the kid who was just about in tears, not because of what was happening on the radio, but because he sees the church ahead and the funeral that's about to happen. And I look past him into the remains of the Murrah Federal Building, the site of the worst terrorist attack in America up until that very moment. And I just remember being struck with something. Can't really explain it. It's a feeling, a very profound feeling. And then, of course, we go into the funeral, and the congregation that's there is there to mourn the loss of their matriarch and great friend who was tragically taken. But then we're also standing there as a group of Americans trying to take in what's happening. And as the service started, the priest tried to bridge the gap between the normal funeral that he had planned and this great national tragedy that was unfolding right before our eyes. And what I remember about the service at that point is not particularly what the priest said, because, again, he was up there struggling, as we all were, struggling to make sense of something that we cannot make sense of. And just remember feeling very, very helpless, but in the presence, in the company of a couple hundred of fellow Americans who were strangers to me. And then after the service, going outside and again seeing the remains of the Murrah Federal Building to the two walls that still stand and thinking to myself that this was just a very solemn moment for America. And there's a part of that memorial in Oklahoma City. There's a saying on it. And to paraphrase the beginning, it says, We remember those who were killed, those who survived, and those changed forever. And to any American on 9-11-2001, we were changed forever. And now, let's hear from bombastic Brent Bassett. Thanks, Mike Gerard. Like many people of my generation, I remember September 11th well. I work in information technology, and on that day I was conducting a seminar on Microsoft SharePoint services in the Microsoft offices, which were located in the Southfield Town Center building in Southfield, Michigan. These are a pair of high-rise office towers, and Microsoft had an office on, I believe, uh, it was the 19th floor. 
I started the presentation, uh, went through the introductions and, and heading toward the demo portion of the presentation when we usually take a quick break. It was maybe 45 minutes to an hour into the presentation. It was at that time that someone came into the conference room, and I can still remember it, and said that if you have loved ones in New York City, you might want to check in on them during the break that a plane had crashed into one of the Twin Towers in New York City. We left the conference room, and in the lobby, there were a number of televisions, and of course, they all had the news on, showing the tower and the aftermath of the first plane crash. It was it was hard to believe a jet airliner had crashed into the building. I think we were all expecting the plane that crashed to have been, you know, a small private plane. And as we watched, we saw another jet strike the second tower, and we all realized that this was no accident. We stayed in that lobby, unable to move, riveted by the scenes we were seeing. I watched the towers fall from that lobby, and I remember the gasps and cries as they fell. We heard and then saw the aftermath of the plane that crashed into the Pentagon. And as we sat there and watched the news and watch these events unfold, rumors started to fly about a fourth plane that was heading toward the Detroit area. There was talk of whether we were going to need to evacuate the towers. This The Southfield Towers are about the only high-rise building in the area. And after seeing the planes crash into the Twin Towers, there was a concern that these planes could be heading this way. Of course, it wasn't long after that that we heard of the plane crash in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and that was the plane that had been rumored to be heading toward Detroit. I stayed in that lobby all morning and a good portion of the afternoon before finally heading home. I remember stopping for gas. You know, we had been attacked, and we weren't sure what would happen next. I watched the news almost nonstop for the next few days. I even slept on the couch with the TV on, waiting to hear of any survivors, waiting to hear how many people had been killed during the attack. So many people work in those towers. And frankly, it could have been it could have been so much worse. Certainly a flashball moment in my life and a tragic day I will never, never forget. Thanks, Bombastic Brent Bassett. If our listeners have a flashbulb moment they would like to share, feel free to post at Patriot Week's Facebook page or on our LinkedIn group, share on Twitter at Patriot Week, or send me an email at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Now, the truth is that 9-11 itself, the events and circumstances leading up to the catastrophe, and the fallout of that day are all worthy of its own multi-episode podcast series. Maybe we'll do that someday in the future. Today, however, we will limit our discussion to mostly what happened on that day with some discussion of why it happened and a quick overview of its consequences. On the early morning hours of September 11, 2001, the United States had about 4,500 planes in the air. The main terrorist threat to planes was thought to be hijackers. 
there have been hijacking events throughout the prior decades, mostly involving foreign planes. For example, Air France Flight 139 in 1976, TW Flight 847 in 1985, and Egypt Air Flight 648 also in 1985. A second concern was the bombing of planes, usually from baggage that had been checked in by passengers who actually never boarded the plane. Air India Flight 182 and more infamously Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988 were just such attacks. Another concern was the shooting down of planes. Many civilian planes have been shot down over the decades, albeit by governments or rebel military forces. No one seemed to consider seriously what would happen on 9-11. No one, except the terrorist. Nineteen terrorists carried out these devastating attacks. Members of the Al-Qaeda terrorist network, they were all men. Fifteen were from Saudi Arabia, two from the United Arab Emirates, one from Lebanon, and one from Egypt. They had plotted and trained for years to carry out a unique and brazen attack on America. The 9-11 Commission Report, a thorough, independent, bipartisan report issued in the wake of the attacks, explained that on the morning of September 11, 2001, The 19 men were aboard four transcontinental flights. They were planning to hijack these planes and turn them into large guided missiles, loaded with up to 11,000. 400 gallons of jet fuel. By 8 a.m. on the morning of Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, they had defeated all the security layers that America's civil aviation security system then had in place to prevent a hijacking. Two of these four commercial flights were American 11 and United 175. Both American Airlines 11 and United Airlines 175 were departing from Boston and were bound for Los Angeles. The third flight was American 77, departing from Dulles International Airport in the suburbs of Virginia outside of Washington, D.C. This flight was bound for Los Angeles as well. The fourth flight was United 93, departing from Newark and bound for San Francisco. The 9-11 Commission report explained that at the time, several of the terrorists were flagged by a computer-assisted passenger pre-screening system, referred to as CAPS, C-A-P-P-S, for special security measures. However, those measures were simply holding back their luggage from being loaded onto the plane until the passengers themselves had boarded. In other words, for the most part, security wanted to make sure that terrorists did not plant a bomb on the plane. The assumption was that no passenger would try to blow himself up. Several of the terrorists also set off metal detectors, which were designed to pick up metal that was sufficient in size to compose a 22 caliber handgun. Although those terrorists were subject to additional screening, they were all cleared to board. A few did receive extra metal detector inspections with a handheld wand, and one terrorist carry-on bag was swiped by explosive trace detectors. As you will hear, knives and box cutters made it onto the planes. Although all the knives were apparently no more than three and a half inches, they were still deadly. The 9-11 Commission report concluded that at least some of the human screeners clearly failed to do their job. The report determined that the hijacking of American 11 began at about 8.14 a.m. The plane was a Boeing 767, a large commercial plane. Its capacity was 158. That day, it hosted 81 passengers, which included the five terrorists, as well as five crew members. The hijacker stabbed two flight attendants, as well as Daniel Lewin, a passenger who was seated behind two of the terrorists. 
He was a veteran officer of the Israeli military and likely trying to stop the two hijackers in front of him. Unfortunately, he was likely stabbed in the back by another hijacker who was immediately behind him. Somehow the hijackers entered the cockpit, which, like all the planes involved in this plot, should have had a closed and locked door. The terrorists killed the pilot and co-pilot. Maester used something similar to drive off passengers and flight attendants, claimed they had a bomb, and forced passengers and flight attendants to the rear of the plane. During this attack, flight attendants were in communication with ground control, but no one understood the gravity of what was about to happen. And then... It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Thumble. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. We don't know if it was a private aircraft. We have no idea how many were on board or what, is, what the extent of the injuries are right now. We are. Uh, we have. I understand an eyewitness on the phone right now, sir. Sir, good morning. This is Bryant Gumbel. Could you tell it? Could you give us your name? Yeah, my name is Stuart. Stuart, where are you right now? I'm working at a restaurant in Soho. All right. So tell us what you saw, if you would. I literally. I was waiting at a table, and I literally saw a. It seemed to be like a small plane. I just heard a couple noises. It looked like it like bounced off the building, and then I heard a. I just saw a huge, like ball of fire on top, and then the smoke seemed to simmer down. And it just, um, you know, a lot of smoke was coming out, and that's pretty much the extent of what I saw. Can you tell us about the scene down there right now? Um, right now, people are just on the street looking at the building. The building, it was just a lot of smoke. Um, it's not too crazy down where I am. At 8.46 and 40 seconds, American 11 crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Everyone on board was killed, as well as likely hundreds of people in the tower. The World Trade Center opened on April 4, 1973. It was composed of seven buildings, most famously the One World Trade Center, which is 1,368 feet tall, and the Two World Trade Center, which is 1,362 feet tall. When they opened, they were the largest buildings in the world. With the other buildings, there was a total of 13,400,000 square feet of office space. The core complex of the center was constructed between 1966 and 1975 at the cost of $400 million, which in today's dollars is about $2.27 billion. On February 26, 1993, terrorists detonated a truck bomb underneath the North Tower, that is One World Trade Center. The plan was that it would crumple and fall into and bring down to World Trade Center. The bomb did no such thing, but it killed six people, including a pregnant woman, and over a thousand people were hurt. On 9-11, the terrorists apparently sprung into action on United Airlines Flight 175, another Boeing 767, between 842 and 846. Using knives, they murdered the pilots and stabbed a flight attendant. They took control of the cockpit, and they used mace and a bomb threat with the crew and passengers. At 9 o'clock, passenger Peter Hansen called his father, Lee Hansen, and left this message. It's getting bad, Dad. The stewardess was stabbed. They seem to have knives and mace. They said they have a bomb. It's getting very bad on the plane. Passengers are throwing up and getting sick. The plane is making jerky movements. I don't think the pilot is flying the plane. I think we are going down. I think they intend to go to Chicago in some place and fly into a building. Don't worry, Dad. If it happens, 
it'll be very fast. My God, my God. The call then ended. The father heard a woman scream at the last second. He turned on the TV and witnessed this scene, either on this channel with Bryant Gumbel or another. Teresa Renault is with us right now. Miss Renault, good morning. Good morning, how this are is, you? This is Bryant Gumbel. I'm down on uh, 59th and 5th. Where are you? I am in Chelsea, and we are at 8th and 16th. We are the tallest building in the area, and we my window faces south, uh, so it looks directly onto the World Trade Center. And I would say, you know, approximately 10 minutes ago, there was a major explosion from probably, it uh, looks like about the 80th floor. It looks like it's affected probably four to eight floors. Uh, major flames are coming out of the, let's see, the north side and also the east side of the building, yes. And it was very loud explosion followed by flames. And it looks like the building is still on fire on the inside. Um, which building are we talking about? The one that's westernmost? Um, let's see. Yes, sir. Did you hear the explosion oh, from yes. your position? Yes, we did. As a matter of fact, we, we heard it and, and cause I was just like standing there pretty much looking out the window. I didn't see what caused it or if there was an impact. So you have no idea right oh, now? Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. <gasps> Right. Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. My God, it's right in the middle of the building. This one into the East Tower. Yes. Yes. Right in the middle of the building. And right now, that, yes, that was definitely looked like it was on purpose. You saw a yes, plane? Yes, I just saw a plane go into the building. Why do you say that was definitely on purpose? It, because it just it just flew straight into it. This is when most of the public realized that the first strike on the World Trade Center was not some freak accident. We were under attack. American Airlines Flight 77 was a Boeing 757 and was in the air at 8.20 a.m. Sometime between 8.51 and 8.54, the hijackers used knives and box cutters to take over the plane. Passengers were shuttled to the back of the craft. Barbara Olson, a conservative media legal commentator and wife of the Solicitor General of the United States, and that's a lawyer who argues cases before the United States Supreme Court, called her husband two times and explained what was going on. And then... Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. We're looking at a uh, live picture from Washington, and there is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. It would appear that there has been another major explosion, this one in the nation's capital. You are looking at a scene of uh, apparent blast aftermath. There is smoke in the air over the Pentagon. We don't know whether this is the result of a bomb or whether it is yet another aircraft that has targeted a um, symbol of the United States power, but there is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. Um, this is coming at 9.43 Eastern Time. The president right now is on his way back from Florida. He had gone there for an educational event. In a brief remarks, he said this was an apparent terrorist attack on our country. We do have a couple of reports, one from AP, one from Reuters, reporting that an American Airlines plane was hijacked. At 9.37 and 46 seconds, American Airlines 77, traveling at about 530 miles per hour, plowed into the Pentagon, killing the 64 people on board and 125 personnel in the Pentagon.
The Pentagon is the headquarters for the United States Department of Defense. It is based in Arlington County, Virginia, with Washington, D.C. just across the Potomac River. Ironically, the groundbreaking happened on September 11, 1943. It is the world's largest office building. It is 6.5 million square feet, hosting 23,000 military and civilian workers. It is called the Pentagon because it is really five separate, five-sided buildings parallel to each other in rows, kind of like one of those Russian dolls that you open up and there's a smaller dowel inside and then another smaller dowel inside, with each building connected to the other by various halls and is five floors high with two basement levels. It has 17 and a half miles of corridors. That's two-thirds of a marathon. I run those things, and that's no joke. There is a plaza in the center of the structure, which has the nickname Ground Zero. The idea was that it would definitely be one of the top targets in a nuclear war. Of course, Ground Zero today is often referred to where the World Trade Center once stood. America Airlines Flight 77 hit the western side of the Pentagon. The last time a foreign enemy made any kind of significant damage on a building in Washington, D.C., that was the War of 1812. United 93, a Boeing 757, was delayed about 25 minutes and took flight from Newark at 8.42 a.m. By 9 o'clock, the Federal Aviation Agency, American and United, were beginning to realize that there were multiple hijackings at the same time. This was outside of the vision of anyone. It had never happened in the United States, and the last time anything like this happened across the globe was more than 30 years earlier. There was no easy mechanism in place to alert other planes of such a threat. American and United Airlines ground all their planes that were not in the air. Controllers at the Boston Command of the FAA, that is the Federal Aviation Agency, tracked the first two hijacked planes, and they asked that the Herndon Command Center to get messages to airborne aircraft to increase security for the cockpit. Apparently, Herndon failed to do so. The airlines also failed to take proactive actions. Finally, one United flight dispatcher, on his own initiative, began to instruct the 16 flights he was responsible for, quote, Beware of any cockpit intrusion. Two aircraft hit World Trace Center, unquote. United 93 received this message at 924. The pilots were confused and two minutes later asked for confirmation of the message. Two minutes after that, the terrorists struck. There was a struggle in the cockpit. The pilot or the co-pilot cried out, Mayday! Mayday! and yelled at the attackers to leave the cockpit. A struggle continued for at least another 35 seconds. By happenstance, there were only 37 passengers on this flight, including the four terrorists, much less normal than usual for this flight. The other planes had teams of five terrorists, but this one was short one terrorist because an immigration inspector at Florida's Orlando International Airport refused the fifth terrorist entry into the country. He could smell a rat. The four terrorists on United 93 waited 47 minutes to strike, while the other team started within a half an hour. A flight attendant who was in the cockpit and held captive was either killed or silenced. The terrorist informed the passengers that they had taken control of the flight and had a bomb. They forced the passengers into the back of the plane. United 93 was being diverted to Washington, D.C., likely to strike the U.S. Capitol. The passengers made a series of phone calls to family, friends, and colleagues and soon discovered what had happened with the World Trade Center. The passengers began to discuss their options. They took a vote, and they decided to retake the plane. Did you hear that? They took a vote. 
That is the American way. Before they launched into action, one of the passengers, Todd Beamer, talked to Lisa Jefferson, a flight dispatcher. The story was conveyed in an interview of Jefferson by Cynthia Bowers. When I took the call over, there was a soft-spoken, calm gentleman on the other end. He told me that there's three people that have taken over the flight. At that point, I asked him his name. He told me, Todd Beamer. He was from Cranberry, New Jersey. Did you make a conscious decision not to tell Todd about the World Trade Center? Why? Yes. Because um, I wanted him to have hope. I wanted him to think that he still had a chance. I didn't want him to feel like it was just totally hopeless and he definitely didn't have a choice and he knew he was going to die. I didn't want him to have that feeling. When he wanted to pray, was your sense then that that he knew that? Yes, I did. I felt that he knew at that time because he had said, oh, Jesus, help us. And then he said, Lisa, would you recite the Lord's Prayer with me? And I knew that he knew at that time that it wasn't much left for him to do. What do you think that um, this country needs to know about the men and women who were on board Flight 93? They're all heroes in my eyes. They really are. They all pitched together and they did what they thought was the best thing to do at that time. And um, I feel that Todd played a great role in that because when he told the guys, are you ready? I assumed that they were waiting on his cue. Then they responded to him and he said, okay, let's roll. And would you please help me welcome his wife, Lisa Beamer here tonight. She called me this Saturday morning. I told her, I said, you have two boys, David and Andrew. She said, yes, yes, I do. I said, you're expecting a third child? She said, yes, he told you all of that. I said, yes, he did. And he wanted me to let you know that he loved you and his family very much. And I gave her a message and kept my promise. Just heart crushing. A CNN report describes what happened next. The passengers' counterattack on the cockpit began at 9.57 a.m., the recording revealed. Is there something? A hijacker asks in Arabic. A fight? Yeah, another replies. Hijackers grab an axe in the cockpit to wedge the door shut. Jara makes a hard turn to the left, banking the plane. For the next minute, he rapidly pitches the plane from side to side, left to right, over and over again. Oh Allah! Oh Allah! Oh the most gracious! An Arabic voice inside the cockpit says. Outside the cockpit, voices are heard saying, In the cockpit! In the cockpit! A hijacker says in Arabic, They want to get in here. Hold! Hold from the inside! Hold from the inside! Hold! At 9.59, Jera points the plane's nose down, then jerks it back up. There are sounds of shouting and breaking glass. Is that it? Shall we finish it off? A hijacker asks in Arabic. No, not yet. When they all come, we finish it off. Another hijacker responds in Arabic. Roll it! The passengers then make another run for the cockpit. In the cockpit! If we don't, we'll die! A male passenger says. Seconds later, another passenger yells it. Roll it! A possible reference to a drink cart passengers might have used to ram the cockpit door. Cut off the oxygen! One of the hijackers says in Arabic, repeating the order three times. Jera 
resumes pitching the plane from side to side. Inside the cockpit, the hijackers decide to crash the plane. Pull it down! Pull it down! An Arabic voice says. The jetliner heads downward and rolls. Allah is the greatest! Allah is the greatest! One of the hijackers shouts over and over again. The tape ends at 10.03 as the plane nosedives at an estimated 580 miles per hour into a reclaimed coal field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, about 80 miles from Pittsburgh. The unthinkable had happened. Four planes were used as weapons. The north and south towers of the World Trade Center were burning, as was the Pentagon. Another plane spiraled out of control and crashed. But we were nowhere close to being done. At 9.59, reporter N.J. Burkett was at the foot of the south tower of the World Trade Center. Take two. Take two and two. One. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way! And a little less than 30 minutes later, at 10.28 a.m., CBS News was reporting when the North Tower, which was first hit, went into oblivion. Uh, not only to tell people to, uh, to uh, keep some distance from the building, but to take immediate cover. Can you tell me a little bit more? Well, actually, let's look at these live pictures at the World Trade Center. The other tower of the World Trade Center has just collapsed. You are looking at live pictures of the second twin tower at the World Trade Center collapsing as a result of the crash of an airplane into its side. That, I believe, was the first tower that was struck. 184 people were killed at the Pentagon. 40 passengers and crew members died in the field in Pennsylvania. 2,763 were killed at the World Trade Center, including 343 firefighters and paramedics, 23 New York City police officers, and 37 Port Authority police officers. These courageous men and women ran into the flaming buildings to rescue those trapped inside. We will highlight just one such hero, Stephen Siller. Stephen is memorialized in the Stephen Siller Foundation National Tunnel to Towers 5K races that are held across the nation. Patriot Week has helped to promote these in Michigan with the Michigan Remembers 9-11 Fund, and Judge Warren and Leah Warren have participated in the run for several years, and Leah has even won on occasion. Stephen Siller was an off-duty firefighter who was on his way to golf when he heard on his truck scanner about the two towers being on fire. He obtained his gear and drove to the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, but it was shut down for security purposes. Undeterred, he put on his 60 pounds of gear and ran a 5K, that's 3.1 miles, to the Twin Towers and rushed into the building to help. He never came back. And that's why there's a 5K to commemorate his sacrifice. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation reflects as follows. Stephen had everything to live for a great wife, five wonderful children, a devoted extended family and friends. Stephen's parents were lay Franciscans, and he grew up under the guiding philosophy of St. Francis of Assisi, whose encouraging and inspirational phrase, while we have time, let us do good, 
were words that Stephen lived by. Stephen's life and heroic death serve as a reminder to us all to live life to the fullest and to spend our time here on earth doing good. This is his legacy. Author and family friend Jay Price wrote, Every momentous event, even a tragedy, has its symbolic figures. September 11th was no different. It just had a few more of them. Rudy Giuliani, Father Michael Judge, the four guys on United Flight 93, a hundred more, a thousand. None bigger than Stephen Siller, whose stature only grows with time as New Yorkers and people from around the world follow his footsteps. Citizens of 78 countries died in New York, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania, including many Muslims. That, of course, was of no concern to the terrorist, and we will hear why soon enough. President George W. Bush, who had been visiting a school in Florida, was informed five minutes after the first plane hit the World Trade Center. He was told that it was a small twin-engine aircraft, which, by the way, is exactly what I thought when I heard about the World Trade Center being struck for the first time. Being a pilot himself, the president surmised it must have been a pilot error. While in a classroom at 9.05, the president's chief of staff, Andrew Card, whispered to the president, A second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. The president was facing a slew of journalists in the classroom, and he needed to project calm and confidence and strength. He took the message in stride, remained for another five to seven minutes, and then left. He was immediately briefed. He determined to return to Washington, D.C., called Vice President Dick Cheney and told him, Sounds like we have a minor war going on here. I heard about the Pentagon. We're at war. Somebody's going to pay. Bush wanted desperately to return to Washington, but the president's staff and vice president told him to stay safe and away. Less than 30 minutes after United 175 struck the South Tower, President Bush declared that there is an apparent terrorist attack on the country. The president authorized the shooting down of any hijacked planes which would not divert when instructed by fighter jets. At this time, United 93 was still in the air. However, this order was not promptly conveyed down the proper chain of command. In fact, the 9-11 report revealed various communication and policy weaknesses for national defense against terrorist attacks, including lack of coordination, decisions made in ad hoc fashions, and a variety of other issues that plagued America's homeland security the morning of 9-11. In any event, at 8.30 p.m., the president addressed the American people. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes, or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. The pictures of airplanes flying into buildings, fires burning, huge, huge structures collapsing, have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness and a quiet, unyielding anger. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat. But they have failed. Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation.
Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world. And no one will keep that light from shining. Today, our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature. And we responded with the best of America, with the daring of our rescue workers, with the caring of, for strangers and neighbors who came to give blood and help in any way they could. Immediately following the first attack, I implemented our government's emergency response plans. Our military is powerful and it's prepared. Our emergency teams are working in New York City and Washington, D.C. to help with local rescue efforts. Our first priority is to get help to those who have been injured and to take every precaution to protect our citizens at home and around the world from further attacks. The functions of our government continue without interruption. Federal agencies in Washington, which had to be evacuated today, are reopening for essential personnel tonight and will be open for business tomorrow. Our financial institutions remain strong and the American economy will be open for business as well. The search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. I appreciate so very much the members of Congress who have joined me in strongly condemning these attacks. And on behalf of the American people, I thank the many world leaders who have called to offer their condolences and assistance. America and our friends and allies join with all those who want peace and security in the world. And we stand together to win the war against terrorism. Tonight, I ask for your prayers for all those who grieve, for the children whose worlds have been shattered, for all whose sense of safety and security has been threatened. And I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us, spoken through the ages in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. This is a day when all Americans from every walk of life unite in our resolve for justice and peace. America has stood down any enemies before, and we will do so this time. None of us will ever forget this day, yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. Thank you. Good night. And God bless America. The president resolved to protect the nation and exact revenge. On September 14, 2001, he visited the ruins of the World Trade Center, now dubbed Ground Zero. President Bush was comfortably dressed in casual outside work clothes, got on a pile of rubble, grabbed a bullhorn, and began to address firefighters, police, recovery workers, and others on the scene. He began his remarks with his arm around the neck and shoulder of an older firefighter. Now Bush, truth be told, was not known as the most eloquent speaker, but his comments struck a remarkable chord with America as he interacted with his impromptu, dusty, tired, and very, very patriotic audience. 
I want you all to know that America today, America today is on bended knee in prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here, for the families who mourn. This nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can hear you! I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... and the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Now that we know what happened, the question is why? Why would 19 hijackers kill themselves and thousands of innocent civilians? One might make an argument that the Pentagon was a legitimate military target, but of course, we were not at war. One might argue that the Congress was a justifiable political target, but over what policy? And why through an airliner converted into a missile? And the World Trade Center? It was not a military or political target. Why should the people inside die in an inferno or by being crushed? To answer this, we could go back centuries, but we'll just go back a few decades to its most immediate causes. When the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979 to prop up a communist regime, it sparked a conflict that drew in thousands upon thousands of Islamic men to fight against the enemies of Islam in a jihad, that is a religious war, to repel the invader and establish a new Islamic state. Osama bin Laden appeared on the scene in 1980. He was just 23 years old, the 17th of 57 children, the scion of a construction fortune. He tried to pass himself off as a scholar of Islam. There was no doubt he was a charismatic leader, who mostly stayed off the battlefield, but instead helped recruit, organize, arm, and fund the resistance known as the Mujahideen, that is, holy warriors. In 1989, the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan and bin Laden determined to transfigure his current organization into one that would continue the jihad across the globe. That organization was dubbed a base or foundation known as Al-Qaeda. Bin Laden embraced an extremist, fundamentalist worldview of Islam. Although he claimed his vision was universal, in reality it mostly focused on Arabs and those practicing the Sunni branch of Islam, Like many extreme Muslims, he pined for the days of the Golden Age of Islam, that is, the century after the Prophet Muhammad shared his revelations. During that time, Islam was a unified religion and the way of life that spread like wildfire throughout the Arabian Peninsula, the Middle East, North Africa, and even large portions of Europe. Eventually, Islam split into two major competing branches, Sunni 
and Shia. The division began over the leadership of Islam, but it manifested itself in many ways throughout the ages. The Sunni, which is the majority sect, established a government in the territory it held. This territory and unified government was called the Caliphate. The Caliphate makes no distinction between church and state. Unlike the United States and most Western nations, the Caliphate exists to enforce and impose Muslim law, called Sharia, on the people it governs. Its most recent iteration had been the Ottoman Empire, and the Caliphate dissolved in 1924. To bin Laden and his followers, this was a catastrophe of the First Order. They despaired over the rise of the West and the collapse of the Caliphate. Their view was that a new caliphate needed to arise, eventually to sweep over the entire globe. Islam's decline and the destruction of the caliphate occurred, in their view, because Shias had torn up the one true faith and religious leaders and fellow Muslims failed to follow the true word of Allah. This corruption allowed infidels to steal their land and treasure and led to otherwise good Muslims to losing their souls. Borrowing from the Egyptian writer Sayyid Qatab, a member of the Egyptian Brotherhood who was executed for treason in 1966, bin Laden believed that the world is divided into two camps. Those who believe in Islam, particularly his view of Sunni Islam, and everyone else. And everyone else are barbarians, non-believers, who needed to be purged. People must choose, because the comforts and luxuries of decadence are appealing. The temptations of the flesh could overwhelm the righteous path. This black-and-white, all-or-nothing view means that you either must fight literally with arms on behalf of God and the jihad or be targeted for destruction along with all the other infidels. In this worldview, America is public enemy number one. After all, the United States projects power throughout the world. It believes in the Declaration of Independence with its attendant first principles of the rule of law, unalienable rights, limited government, the social compact, equality, and the right to alter or abolish an oppressive government. All of this is antithetical to bin Laden's worldview. Bin Laden remarked about America, quote, It is saddening to tell you that you are the worst civilization witnessed by the history of mankind, unquote. That's quite a tall order. If the United States did not withdraw from the Middle East, convert to Islam, and become strict adherents to Islamic morality in his view, then America by necessity would be at war with Al-Qaeda, which according to Al-Qaeda itself, quote, desires death more than America desires life, unquote. Naturally, bin Laden began calling for attacks on the United States no later than 1992. In August of 1996, he issued a fatwa attacking Saudi Arabia for allowing American troops on Islamic sacred soil. And he rejoiced and applauded various terrorist attacks against the United States, such as the 1983 suicide bombing in Beirut that slaughtered 241 American Marines, and the 1993 Battle of Mogadishu, also known as the Somalia Black Hawk Down Skirmish. Bin Laden was emboldened by the Afghan Mujahideen's defeat of the Soviet Empire and hoped to defeat the United States in a similar confrontation. The 9-11 Commission report explained what happened next. In February 1998, the 40-year-old Saudi exile Osama bin Laden and a fugitive Egyptian physician Ayman al-Zawahiri arranged from their Afghan headquarters for an Arabic newspaper in London to publish what they termed a fatwa issued in the name of a World Islamic Front. A fatwa is normally an interpretation of Islamic law by a respected Islamic authority, but neither bin Laden, Zawahiri, 
nor the three others who signed this statement were scholars of Islamic law, claiming that America had declared war against God and his messenger, they called for the murder of any American anywhere on earth as the individual duty for every Muslim who can do it in any country in which it is possible to do it. And to put to rest any possible ambiguity, in an interview in Afghanistan by ABC TV, three months later, after the World Islamic Front fatwa was published, bin Laden explained that killing Americans was much more important than killing any other infidels and that indiscriminate killing was justified. Asked whether he approved of terrorism and of attacks on civilians, he replied, We believe that the worst thieves in the world today and the worst terrorists are the Americans. Nothing could stop you except perhaps retaliation in kind. We do not have to differentiate between military or civilian. As far as we are concerned, they are all targets. We don't need to go through all the twists and turns here. Suffice it to say that with bin Laden's evil mastermind at work and the ingenuity of al-Qaeda terrorist entrepreneurs, a plot was hatched and implemented to strike at America's military, political leadership, and economy by using hijacked planes as missiles guided by suicidal pilots, and it mostly worked. And one note of caution, President George W. Bush reminded us that the billion Muslims in the world are not our enemy just a tiny fraction of the most extremist fundamentalist. Quote, All Americans must recognize that the face of terror is not the true face of Islam. Islam is a faith that brings comfort to a billion people around the world. It's a faith that has made brothers and sisters of every race. It's a faith based upon love, not hate. Unquote. And here we are, 20 years later. What has 9-11 wrought? The aftermath of 9-11 has been immense. In addition to the direct loss of life of 2,977 people, 25,000 people injured, and psychological pain it inflicted on the families of the victims, it destroyed billions of dollars of economic activity, directly and indirectly. Many first responders and those excavating the ruins at the World Trade Center became ill from the toxic fumes and particulates they breathed in and during the recovery mission. Up to 10,000 people have been diagnosed with 9-11-related cancer. Nearly $15 billion has been paid for the compensation of victims' families and rescue workers. It sparked what became known as the War on Terror with military and diplomatic missions across the globe, including America's just-concluded war in Afghanistan and the invasion of Iraq, with all the blood, physical scars, detrimental psychological effects, and enormous spending in their wake. Enemy combatants were held in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Americans engaged in what many people consider torture, or at least enhanced interrogation techniques. A huge amount of deficit spending was focused on military, homeland security, and anti-terrorist equipment, programs, and operations. It gave rise of an amazingly powerful surveillance state spearheaded by the National Security Agency and emboldened by the Patriot Act. It sparked the reorganization of the federal government by establishing the Homeland Security Agency, immigration reform, massive changes to airport security, raising of memorials to the victims, the building of the largest skyscraper in North America, the Freedom Tower, 1776 feet tall, and if you toss in the antenna, it's 1792 feet tall. Bin Laden was killed and Al-Qaeda ravaged. 
But then again, the Islamic State that dominated much of Syria and Iraq for a short amount of time arose in the aftermath of the Iraqi war. And we can't forget that Patriot Week was founded with 9-11 as its first anchor day. There are countless other changes. It also had several profound, intangible effects for us. First, it annihilated the idea that the United States was the fortress America, invulnerable from foreign attack. Second, fear gripped the country that day with a halo effect. The anxiety of a terrorist attack seems to linger in the background. Combine that with the apparent upswing in mass shootings, and we no longer take our safety for granted. Third, we became much more suspicious of, well, suspicious activities. Toss in the shoe bomber, the Boston Marathon bombing, the Little Rock recruiting offshooting, the Fort Hood shooting, and various foiled plots, and we are much more aware of our surroundings. We are no longer innocent or naive, and our urge to carry guns, learn self-defense, and to call 911 if there is anything out of kilter. Fourth, we have become used to intrusions into our privacy, both with regard to our bodies and information. Combined with social media and the ubiquity of online shopping and similar activities, we have become used to pat-downs, metal detectors, guard dogs, showing identification for just about everything, etc. We pretty much take for granted that the government can spy on us, at least our electronic activities. Edward Snowden taught us that. Fifth, for one shiny moment, we were a united country. On September 12th, we came together as Americans. We put aside petty bickering and partisan divides and did what we thought best for our country. We were kind to each other. We were gentle, polite, considerate, generous. We cared about each other. If only this had taken deeper root. And that's really the spirit of Patriot Week, reminding us what unites us as Americans so that we can protect our freedom together. Sixth, the unknown ripples in history we have yet to understand or experience. Some key takeaways from this episode. Driven by hateful Islamic extremist ideology led by Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda destroyed the Twin Towers. They struck the Pentagon and they were stopped by brave souls on the fourth plane from crashing into Washington, D.C. The legacies of those who died that day should never be forgotten, especially the heroes of United 93 and the first responders. We should not be so naive as to think that we are a fortress America that cannot be attacked, and we must know and be prepared for those who hate us because of what we stand for and what we believe. Those founding first principles from a Declaration of Independence which are embodied in our Constitution. That's what makes America, America. And that's what drives terrorists to attack us. We must not let the terrorists win, militarily or spiritually. We must not forget or abandon the founding first principles of the rule of law, unalienable rights, limited government, the social compact, equality, and the right to alter or abolish an oppressive government. If we do, the terrorists will win without firing a shot. You don't think that will happen? Think again. There are many in our society that have been condemning the founding fathers and our other iconic patriots as being fatally flawed. Many scowl at our society as being irredeemable. Look at the fall of the Berlin Wall and the dissolving of the Afghan army upon America's withdrawal. When the Soviets and the Afghan government no longer believed in themselves, they fell apart. It can happen here. Don't let it. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two terrific Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skinechny, who is our sound designer and the host of his own unique podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett, famous dungeon master, Hey, are we ever going to go on an adventure again, Brent? Brent. Brent Bassett. Bombastic Brent Bassett. Well, 
I guess the jury's still out. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about our first principles, key documents and speeches, patriots and flags. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.